and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Tanner. I'll be one of your hosts today, like usual, and I'll be joined here by Taylor in just a minute. First off, we want to thank you all for your support. We're both so happy to make something that people are enjoying and listening to. That makes us feel really cool. So as uh, as we've said previously, we, we love hearing from all of you. We love interacting on social media. And you can get at us on social media. We're on Twitter at Beyond underscore Breakers. On Instagram at Beyond the Breakers Podcast. You can send us an email at beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. Uh, we do also have a Facebook page that technically exists. We don't do a lot with it, uh, at least not yet, but it is there. Uh, we also do have a Patreon set up for the show. So if you think what we do on the show is worth a few bucks, you can head on over to Patreon. We've got two different tiers that you can join. Both tiers get the bonus episode each month. Money from the Patreon just goes back into the show, paying for stuff like web hosting fees, uh, research material when we need to pay for that kind of stuff. Uh, and occasionally, you know, upgrading equipment, things that hopefully make the show sound a little bit better. Uh, so with all of that, uh, I'll bring in Taylor here. Taylor, what's up? Not a whole lot. Just uh, enjoying college football bowl season. Um, pretty nice day today. 60 degrees in December for some reason. But uh, yeah, pretty good overall. How about you? Pretty good. We had a, we had a day like that uh, here in Wisconsin last week. It was 61 degrees on December 15th. <laughs> Perfectly good and normal. Normal and good. Yeah, we'll talk. Uh, well, that's a good lead in to talk about bowl season. Yeah. So if you follow us on Instagram or Twitter, you definitely saw us posting about the college bowl pick competition that we're, we're doing. Got a few people to join up. So that's cool. Got a few people who don't have the last name Johnson to join. <laughs> and that's that's cool. Trying to avoid accusations of nepotism when we give out the grand prize. <laughs> so that's cool. I'm not doing so well. No, no, you're think, not. You're not I'm, doing well. I think I'm in. I think I'm in last place, but I'm only. I mean, at this point, only a game behind second to last place. <laughs> so, you never expect BYU to lose to UAB. No, no, didn't predict that. Yep, that was just the final cherry on top yesterday for me uh, of not doing very well. <laughs> but it's fun. It's a fun time. Yeah, and I definitely think we'll be doing more of those. We'll look at doing like a March Madness uh, bracket pool and, and that kind of oh, thing. Oh, for sure. That's, that's fun. Especially having, we've got the World Cup coming up. Yeah. Maybe maybe that'll entice more of our international listeners, more so than American football. Collegiate <laughs> American football, no less. So we'll have to see what that what that does for us this summer. In addition, uh, one, one more thing going back kind of to the uh, more of the social media aspect of it. For those of us, or those of you, who listen to the show on Spotify, which is a significant number of you, I did not realize how many people used Spotify to listen to the show. But over, I think over a third of our listeners yeah. are doing it yep. through Spotify. So uh, so yeah, if you, uh, if you listen through Spotify, now you have the ability to... I know you can rate. I don't know if you can review the show also. I think it's just ratings. Of, but okay, we would definitely appreciate the rating. Yeah, if you listen to us on there and you think we've earned a five-star rating, please uh, give us a five-star rating. That helps us with uh, staying visible, making sure people can can see the show. So yeah, that would be, that'd be awesome if you want to give us a rating on Spotify. All right. I think that's all of the housekeeping stuff. Yeah, I think so. All right. Let's dive into our episode for today. We're going to be back in the Great Lakes, as I mentioned this week as I was teasing the show. Going to stay home. We're going to talk about a ship called the SS John B. Cowell. 
Nice. Familiar? Unfamiliar? Uh, not one that I'd heard of, to be honest with you. I know I tend to know a little bit more about some of these, but this is not one that was on my radar. Mm-hmm. This is one I found because I was explicitly looking for wrecks on the Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. Usually when I'm doing my research, I kind of sometimes I'll pick a country or a region and I'll start looking that way. You had suggested trying something in the Great Lakes because I haven't really done that with a with a you know a big lake freighter yet. Right, which is kind of what the show was started around was the mm-hmm. idea of doing a lot of these kind of things before we branched out into different areas. So mm-hmm. this be yeah, interesting. So we'll be be doing uh, doing something kind of you know more more down the middle, but uh, something a little bit more new for me. So the John B. Cowell was built in 1902 by the Jinx Shipbuilding Company. And she's named for the businessman and shipbuilder John Beswick Cowell of Cleveland. Her christening was conducted by Cowell's daughter, a Mrs. O.S. Kramer. Just a small detail that seems to be mentioned in all of the <laughs> newspaper articles about it, so figured I'd mention it. John B. Cowell's interesting. It's one of the first lake freighters that are kind of as we think of them today. Yeah, I thought I noticed that looking at the pictures that... It didn't look like old. I mean, it obviously looks old, but like you can find vessels that have a similar profile still today. Right. A lot of the reasons it looks old for a lot of lot of the pictures is just because the picture itself is an old picture. I feel like to at least an untrained eye like me, if this were fully colorized and in you know high def, this probably wouldn't look that different. Right. From, like an Arthur uh, M. Anderson or something like that. Right. And, obviously and not as big, but. Exactly. Like the only significant difference is the size. If you if you had it next to a modern freighter, you would see that this thing is tiny in comparison. So, yeah, on, on that note, John B. Cowell was 445 feet in length and 50 feet in beam. So to put that in perspective, 445 feet for the Cowell, the Edmund Fitzgerald, obviously the most famous ship from the Great Lakes for, for most people, was about 700 feet, just over 700 feet in length. And the current Queen of the Lakes, the Paul Tregurtha, is right around 1,000 feet. Nice. So in terms of what constitutes a big freighter, we've definitely changed right. over the years. So a little bit about the history of, of the John B. Cowell before our main story today. So again, started life in 1902. June 13th, 1905, she made the papers for an incident in which a crewman named Thomas Conlon had his leg broken while the ship was departing the coal dock at Detour and was taken to the hospital at Sault Ste. Marie. The only reason I'm mentioning this, really, is that this appeared in the Duluth News Tribune, and I found it interesting that such a minor, seemingly minor story was mentioned in the newspaper. It is kind of strange. Like, is there just nothing going on to report? I, news travels slower in 1905, I guess. I don't know. You've got to fill it with something, right? Yeah, it's interesting reading through the pages of this. And actually, for this whole episode... There's a particular database that I really, really used a lot called America's Historical Newspapers, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what it sounds like. And I was able to find a lot of these even really minor, mundane newspaper articles that were dealing with these ships. So that was pretty cool. That's really the only reason I'm including it. There's more to it. There is like a lawsuit and stuff that I considered adding in at the end, but we'll skip over it for today. If you're very interested in that story then I have the relevant articles. Mm-hmm. So on May, tw- uh, May 31st, 1906, near St. Clair, Michigan, the Cal was involved in her first fatal incident. 
And this was the ramming of the British steamer Aaron, killing five of Aaron's crew. Hmm. I wasn't able to find too much about this incident, how it happened, or why it happened. But the officer in charge of the cow was exonerated of any fault. So something seemingly out of his control. But this would be her first noteworthy incident with another vessel. Uh, So on April 16th, 1908, reading here from the Duluth News Tribune, Mm -hmm. Edgar Huff of Chicago, last year mate on the steamer John B. Cowell, has been appointed master of the steamer Parks Foster, succeeding the late Captain Isbister. Again, minor detail, not really that relevant to our story or that important. But again, it's interesting to notice how these minor details got reported. This is something that people apparently needed to know, wanted to read about. So it shows up in these newspapers in the sections dealing with the lakes. It's interesting. It, it almost reads like the transactions section of like the newspaper for sports back in the day, where you see like, you know, Cincinnati Reds have sent so-and-so to AAA Louisville and they've recalled so-and-so. Like, mm-hmm. it's interesting that people are following along with these like uh, mates and captains and like their careers and stuff. Like it means yeah, something that's a gr- to people. That's a great comparison, because that's exactly what it is. It'll be this person who we all know as the former first mate on this ship. He's he's going to be the captain of this ship in the next season. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very cool uh, how, how this was sort of kept up with. So in the process of researching this, I found a lot of stuff like that, you know, not directly relevant to the story. There's one that I want to mention from 1909, June 30th, the uh, in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. The name of the article is... The fine don't go. <laughs> uh, Representative Cassidy heard from the Steamboat Inspection Bureau today that fine opposed on Charles F. Reynolds has been revoked. He was fined for operating his motorboat without bell or whistle. He proved, however, that the boat was merely being tested for its engine when it was inspected and that the missing appliances had been ordered. <laughs> this is like in your car, I guess, if you're about to get ticketed for not having updated plates and you just... You just have to say, oh, they're in the mail. Yeah, like, like they're. All, I got the email saying they're on their way. <laughs> yeah, it's right here. Also, I think it's funny that he was sailing it literally without bells or whistles. <laughs> Not even an exaggeration. Uh, so let's get us to the incident itself that we'll be discussing the today. Incident. That is that is on July 12, 1909. So on this day, the John B. Cowell was traveling from two harbors in Minnesota to Cleveland. She was very heavily laden with 7,000 tons of iron ore. Interesting to note here, we talked about the size comparisons of these these lake freighters. Heavily laden, obviously, is a relative for the time here. 7,000 tons doesn't sound that much if you're used to more modern freighters. I mean, right. If you look at the, the famous line from the song, the Edmund Fitzgerald with 26,000 tons of ore, the current Queen of the Lakes, Paul Tregurtha, uh, that has a carrying capacity of 69,000 tons. So we've, we've come a long way in terms of what the ships can, nice. can handle. Very. At the same time, another ship was traveling upbound from the Sioux Locks. This was the Isaac M. Scott. I know that one. I know Isaac that name. Isaac M. Scott. Yeah, this name, this name should ring some bells, probably, uh, for people who've listened to our show, or if you've just read about the lakes, the Isaac M. Scott maybe is a name that you know. Uh, we, in particular, discussed her on our episode about the Great Lakes Storm of 1913, where she doesn't have a great time. <laughs> no, she doesn't. But not. we'll come back to that later a little bit. So Isaac M. Scott, she's brand new. This is literally her first voyage. This is her maiden voyage. She's she's headed towards Duluth to pick up 
uh, cargo. So her holds are totally empty, uh, and she's apparently running pretty fast. So around 4 a.m., the cowl is about a mile and a half off Whitefish Point. Mm-hmm. So Whitefish Point, for if you don't have a mental map in your head of this area, Whitefish Point is just northwest of Sault Ste. Marie uh, on Lake Superior. Conditions here were extremely foggy with really low visibility. And because of the conditions, Captain W.G. Rogers, he took the cowl down to half speed, which is a pretty prudent move. Right. Was, yeah, with the conditions. Uh, the conditions, and of course, he knows where he is. He's approaching Sault Ste. Marie, a huge shipping hub. He knows that there's going to be other vessels. There's going to be traffic in the area. He's going to slow down. Also, in you know, in accordance with the standard regulations, in addition to slowing down, he's blowing his fog signal at very short intervals, just to to keep everyone aware that there's there's a ship here. Right. And so, we're featuring it on this show. So, sure enough. Out of the fog comes the shape of the Isaac M. Scott. It was a handsome shape, though. Remember, it was the handsomest lake freighter there ever was, according to the one newspaper article. Cold comfort, I'm sure, <laughs> in this situation. It's described in, in a few different sources as either, quote, roaring or barreling towards the cowl. <laughs> so she was not practicing safe operating speeds. Right. Also, that we'll come back to at the end. Uh, so the... Rogers, the captain of the cow, is trying to be careful. The captain or the pilot of the Scott, not quite as much. They're just out having a good time on their brand new ship. <laughs> and that is so, the same captain, correct? Of the Scott? Yes, that would that we, we talked about previously. That I don't know. Captain MacArthur? Yes, that is the same guy. Okay. I didn't cross-reference with, with that. I, I just, I just double-checked it. It is. Captain okay. MacArthur is the same captain that uh, would go down with the ship later. Well... Okay. Well, that adds just another layer to our story, then. (laughs) So, yeah, Captain MacArthur of the Scott, he sees the cowl at roughly the same time that they see him. So he throws the engines into full reverse. But as we see in stories like this, big ships like this don't stop on a dime. And this collision occurs. Uh, The Isaac M. Scott rams the cowl broadside, penetrating her hull between 15 and 20 feet deep. Dang. (laughs) <laughs> um, so if you remember the detail of her beam measurement at 50 feet, she, she basically just cuts the other ship in two. That's crazy. So quoting here from the Baltimore American side note here, I was interested to see how many papers around the country reported on this and not just, you know, not just Duluth or Cleveland or Milwaukee reporting on this. Uh, so Captain MacArthur of the Scott, he declared that the first intimation he had of the cowl's presence was when the great hull loomed up through the fog, so close to the bow of his ship that it was impossible to prevent the two steamers coming together. Interesting. So that's Captain MacArthur's take on it. Okay. Uh, so as the Scott finally gets into reverse, as that the reverse engines finally sort of take hold, this big gash in the side of the cowl is now wide open, and it's allowing the water to flood in. Right. Um, I kind of thought it's one of those situations of, do I... Do I leave it in? Do I take it out? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I'm thinking too. It's almost like a a big splinter or something. Like, like you take it out, like, you know, it's going to sink quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. So (laughs) she begins to sink immediately. And pretty much every account of this is in lockstep agreement that within three minutes, she was completely underwater. That's crazy. So yeah, like it doesn't take long for this to take effect. Yeah. This really shows how big the, 
hole is, I think, because this is a pretty big ship sinking in three minutes. The amount of water she's taking in is massive. And so this is a fatal accident from the moment it it happens. Like, this is not recoverable. You see some of these where it's like, oh, if they had done this or if they had done that, then maybe things could have turned out better. Like, this isn't one of those scenarios. Like, it's over when it starts. Exactly. When the Scott hits it at the speed that it does. I mean, if if they had seen each other sooner, maybe maybe the ship is able to slow down more. But at this point, it hits it at or very, very little bit under full speed. Right. Okay. So like we saw in the Empress of Ireland episode, in the HMAS Voyager episode, situations like this, very often the best hope of rescue for, for the ship that gets rammed is usually the ship that rammed it. Right. Because it's right there. And a lot of the time, it's not fine, but at least still in operable condition. Mm-hmm. And that's provided it stays on scene. We've had we've had some stories, I know, where a collision happens and the other ship just sort of steams off through the fog. Uh, my favorite one is still the captain of the Empress of Ireland trying to fight the other captain when he gets rescued. Yes, the of the store stud. Yeah, that's, that's still my favorite collision <laughs> incident, which, like, I get it. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, that that would be the case in this story as well. So the crew of the Scott immediately, they've hit the ship, they immediately start moving around trying to get people rescued, trying to get people onto their ship. Right. Uh, they throw a line across to the cowl, and this allows three of the crew to, to escape right away. Captain Rogers of the cowl, he also had his 16-year-old son on board. Mm-hmm. Well, he's basically yeah. an adult at this time. He is. 1909, <laughs> you know, 16 years old, you're a grown man. <laughs> So yeah, he manages to get... Uh, one source says that he got a life preserver on his son. Uh-huh. I feel like that makes him sound like a small child. Right. His son actually served as a member of the crew. Right. So, I'm, so he's not just there to like tag along. Like He's actually... Yeah, so I'm, I'm assuming that the son was able to get a life preserver on whether or not he, he needed assistance with it. As any crew member may have with a 1905 cork life Exactly. <laughs> as that's happening, that's when Captain Rogers is swept over the side. As the ship is sinking. Again, like, less being taken over the side, more just that the the ship is sinking under you. Mm -hmm. Rogers would later describe the feeling of the sinking as a, quote, most peculiar one. He felt as though, instead of sinking, he was rising in the air. (laughs) Uh, When he came to the surface, he was clinging to some wreckage and was picked up by a yawl uh, from the steamer Goodyear. Uh, who we'll talk about a little bit later. I would imagine that, like, he's probably just kind of in shock and, like, his adrenaline's going and everything. If all this is happening in three minutes, you go from, like, Mm -hmm. everything's good and you're being cautious to, like, in the water. Like, yeah, like, he probably doesn't have time to process all of this, I don't imagine. Yeah, I mean, the brain doesn't have a lot of time to go from, like, something might happen to something is happening to something something did happen. happen. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's that's all happening in in under five minutes here. Captain Rogers would ultimately be in the water for about 45 minutes before being rescued. It is July, but it's also 4 a.m. on the Great Lakes, so the water is not tropical. Right. So Rogers' son and also his brother, who was on the crew, they would both survive. That is a rarity here. As soon as you were setting that up, I was like, and they all drown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the old, the old bait and switch, or just a switch, I don't know. But yeah. Uh, we have kind of a happy ending here. Usually those family stories don't end well. No. Same with dogs. Anytime there's a dog on the ship, sometimes it doesn't But if well. there's horses, they're going to swim. Horses do well. <laughs> horses do well. However, we have a, a flip side to that coin here. The chief engineer of the cowl, uh, John McKernan, his son, Thomas, was also on board. Mm-hmm. 
and he was only on board. He was he was a passenger. Right. He was younger. So while the boy did survive, McKernan himself did not make it off the ship. Still better than some of the stories that we tell. Yeah, yeah. Overall, and like we like we said here, the in our stories, a lot of times the chief engineers, a lot of times they are lost with the ship because they're trying to keep it operational. Yeah, and honestly, if it, it if it truly sank in three minutes, like he didn't have time to quit doing his job. Like you know what I mean? Like you, he's probably trying to assess damage and figure out how they're gonna fix this, and like it's over in that time period. Right. Right. Exactly. I am actually gonna do a relatively lengthy read here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Byron Rogers, the brother of the captain, he was interviewed in the Cleveland Plain Dealer mm-hmm. uh, on the fifteenth of uh, July. Uh, I, I, this I, is the guy who survives, right? This is one of the the family members that survives. Yes, this is from the family that survives. The captain, his brother, and the captain's son. Uh, so this is Byron Rogers. And yeah, this is a, a bit of a lengthy read, but it's a, a pretty gripping account of his experience here. We were preparing breakfast when I heard the warning signal and ran on deck. To my amazement, I saw a towering black mass bearing down upon us. And someone on the forward part of the ship waved me back. I called to the other boys to throw on their life preservers and get on deck as quickly as possible. I barely had time to get outside again when the cow listed sharply. The Scot had struck us about a midship, and as she backed away, the water poured into the hole. A line was thrown out to our forward deck, and three of the boys, including the captain's son, were taken aboard the Scot. On the after deck, 17 of us were huddled together when the ship began to list. We slid or jumped pell-mell into the water, which was ice cold. I struck in a whirlpool, and it seemed the length of a human life before I came out to the air again. I kept going deeper and deeper, and whirled around as if I were in a big wind. My head was twisted until I thought it would be wrenched from my body, and my arms and legs seemed to be pulled from their sockets. At last, I saw the light above me, and a body alongside me. It was Will Thomas, my assistant. I caught him, and was trying to revive him, when a broken hatch cover rising to the surface struck the lad's head, crushing his skull and coloring the water with his blood. My life preserver was wrenched off at this stage, and I was floundering in the water when another hatch cover came up. I grasped a ring on it and was pulling myself up when I noticed a foot sticking out from beneath the cover. Thinking it was Thomas again, I gave it a pull, and to my surprise, brought up Tom McKernan, the son of the chief engineer. The boy seemed to be dead, but I pulled him up on the cover and still held to the ring. Finally, he began to moan, and I knew he was coming too, so I held him tighter. The lake was covered with wreckage, and all around in the fog I could hear cries of help. But I was nearly exhausted, and it took all of my strength to hold myself and the boy to the hatch, as the waves were running fairly high. The water was bitter cold, and as the sun had not risen, the air cut like a knife. It was fully three quarters of an hour before the yawls of the Scot had been loosened, dropped into the water, and started for us. They picked us up, first one here, then two there, and then came to McKernan. And when I got aboard the Scot, I found that I still held in my hand a knife that one of the crew gave me to cut away some rope that held one of the lifeboats. The listing of the vessel had swept the lifeboat and everything before me, and I had to jump. During all my struggles, I'd held to that knife. But of the 17 of us who were huddled together on the after part of the boat, only five were saved. Some of the boys started back to get their clothes, but I called to them and I doubt if more than one or two went down in the vessel. A number of them must have been killed outright by the flying debris, 
as great pieces were swept around like kindling wood. I'm covered with bruises, and my clothing was almost torn from my body. The whole thing seemed to take no longer than two minutes, from the time we were struck until we were in the water. The Scot seemed to back away after striking us, and our boat listed, and then seemed almost to double up as she went down. So again, that was an account from Byron Rogers, the brother of the captain, uh, who was able to escape the sinking uh, successfully. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. We can add hatch covers to it as another way of like, you know, random yes. ways you can be killed in a shipwreck. Things that will kill you on a shipwreck. And it just um, goes to that list of like everything. Like there's just ways you can't even think of, but also it saves him. Like the same piece of debris is able to like help him like live and save the boy that he's with. It reminds me of, I think it was the Anthony Wayne where there was the family traveling with the coffin. Yeah. Yeah. And the coffin ends up like helping them survive. <laughs> right. It's very interesting. And it's just, his account is interesting that it does happen very quickly. Yeah. It's, you know, reading that account, the time I spent reading that account probably took longer than the sinking itself did. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm also interested in like the key, even here, you can kind of see it at the end. He wants to be almost be able to do more for people in the water, but he's trying to balance his own survival. And, you know, he's already helping one person, you know, get through this. Like, it's very interesting that kind of game you have to play of how much can I help someone else versus how much, you know, do I need to save myself or prevent yeah, myself from the, being needed you know, rescuing the it's the same lifeboat dilemma of how many people can I put on this before I put them all at risk. Right. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting account. That was really fascinating to see the the blow by blow account of that. And also, yeah, the line about the person's head being crushed by the hatch cover was just kind of jarringly graphic right. in the middle of this otherwise pretty you know, tame. relatively tame account. And then all of a sudden, oh yeah, and his head got crushed by a hatch cover, which yeah, makes it all the more jarring. Uh, so as we, uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, all of this is happening very close to Sault Ste. Marie. So there's other ships in the area. One of them is the Frank H. Goodyear that I briefly mentioned. That ship from the John Mitchell line. And they had transited the Sulaks just behind the Isaac M. Scott. Uh, and they'd been following her pretty closely. So they were within visible contact of her for a good bit of her voyage. But not at this point. This leads to one of the most, to me, the most eerie aspect of this whole story. The crew of the Goodyear, they witness this collision and sinking, not visually, but just audibly. So if you remember, it's dark, it's foggy, and they're just listening to this. One crew member is quoted as saying, First a rumble like distant thunder, then a distant groan like tortured steel, and shouts from the distance. The rumbling is then compared to an earthquake. I think it's interesting that in his quote, it says a distant groan like tortured steel. And it's like, that's exactly what it was. So uh, we're going to keep going here. Uh, so Captain Russell of the Goodyear. Uh, he roused the crew by sounding the, the alarm, and then he slowed his ship to a crawl. He starts to see people in the water, uh, or he, he starts to expect to see people in the water. The interesting thing about this story is the captain of the Goodyear, Captain Russell is what I just referred to him as. Sometimes in some of the sources, I saw him referred to as Captain Neminger or Heminger. So I've seen that some places. But 
That appears to be the captain at the time the Goodyear itself sank in 1910. Might be the same captain, maybe not. I see there's a little bit of name discrepancy here. But yes, regardless, the captain, he slows down the Goodyear, and then he eventually brings it to a full stop uh, when they see men in the water. Um, and they start to deploy lifeboats to assist. As I mentioned before, it was the Goodyear that would rescue Captain Rogers and second mate William Niles mm-hmm. uh, from, from the water. So while the cow herself was gone by this point, uh-huh. Goodyear came across the Scott with very visible damage to her bow. And reading that, it was very, it was very chilling to me to imagine being the captain of the Goodyear where the ship you've been sailing with, you can't see it through the fog. And then you hear this, you know, horrible collision. You can hear people screaming and you hear, you know, metal twisting. Uh, You could probably hear rivets popping and stuff like that. And then you, you come across a ship, but not two ships. Right. So yeah, I just imagine that being just a terrifying feeling knowing that there was a ship here and it's gone. Well, and especially like, you know what it is like by the sound of it. If you've been on these vessels and like, you've done this job, like, you know, what's happening without being told mm-hmm. what's happening. Like, it's not good. Yeah. And he acted pretty prudently there by, you know, slowing down. He, he knows that something terrible has happened. So he's going to start looking for people. Uh, so speaking of damage to the Scott, it was pretty significant. Quoting from the Aberdeen American, the Scott received serious injuries in the collision, which would probably have sent her to the bottom if she had been loaded. Hmm. This is the first article I found, like, earliest chronologically that used this phrasing of would have sent her to the bottom if she had been loaded. That would be repeated by tons and tons and tons of newspapers. Interesting. And I don't know who used that phrase first. That's the way it's described in all of the headlines. All of the articles about this are basically just copy-pasted versions of each other Mm -hmm. with slightly more detail added. So, yeah, you know, pretty significant damage if she's carrying... Loaded cargo holds, then she probably sinks as well. Uh, It was initially estimated that 11 men had drowned in the sinking. Of the men who'd been picked up, the accounts, as they were kind of doing their little debriefing stuff, 11 was the number they came to. A lot of the early headlines report this number. Mm -hmm. The Baltimore American was the first publication I found showing that death toll had been raised to 14 after more cool and collected questioning of the crew. 14 was the number they came to. Mm -hmm. So among the dead were two engineers. One of them was McKernan that we talked about earlier and Edward Moran, the wheelsman, Wilford Emerson, who will have another little thing to talk about later. An oiler, the last name of Patton. And it's an interesting detail here of looking through all of these newspapers. In a lot of the early accounts, Patton is the only crew member who is listed by name. So hmm. for some reason, his name was available to newspapers before all of these others were. That is interesting. Not like it's like a position of particular power or anything on board. It's mm-hmm. not like he's a mate or anything like that. It's interesting. Five deckhands. They were deckhand Boater, John Lane, Fred Rose, and two with names that were unknown at the time and I was not able to, to track down. I would imagine that's fairly common at the time for like deckhands to probably change pretty frequently and to not really know who they are all the time. Mm-hmm. If you're just looking yeah, for able-bodied cool, people. Watching the story develop sort of day by day, reading those old newspapers was interesting because yeah, at the beginning they only know two or three names and then more come in as it's determined who they were. Another one, uh, a porter with the last name of Johnson. And then also four firemen, firemen Franklin, 
uh, Walter Woodward, Seymour Higgs, and one also name unknown. So Captain Rogers and Second Mate Niles, they were taken on to Duluth. So they were picked up by the Goodyear that was traveling to Duluth. They stayed on. They continued uh, while the remaining survivors were on the Scott. Uh, the Scott obviously had significant damage. They turned right around and headed back to Sault Ste. Marie. Mm-hmm where everyone disembarked. Those survivors boarded a train and continued on to Cleveland. That's where the company was headquartered, so everyone needed to get to Cleveland. Right. For a meeting with the boss. (laughs) Uh, So Niles' survival, interestingly enough, might not just be simple luck. There's a little bit more to it, maybe. The Duluth News Tribune reported that, quote, William Niles, the second mate, said that owing to the dense fog, when he turned in, he simply slipped off his outer clothing. When the crash came... He rushed out on deck, and the boat was rapidly sinking. He knew that it was useless to save any of his effects and turned all his efforts to saving life. I think that's really interesting because this is true like in any disaster scenario. Like It doesn't matter if it's an airplane incident, a ship, a train, a human crush type situation. Never go back for your things. Ever. Like, it just doesn't matter. Like, I think it's interesting. You can tell really quickly how someone's viewing a situation, because if it's truly life or death, like, I don't care that I've left my cell phone somewhere. Like, I'm getting out of that situation. Whereas if you go into it with, like, that mindset of, like, you know, this is just a thing, you wouldn't care about your cell phone if you knew your life was on the line. Mm -hmm. And in this case, like, he doesn't care about his pocket watch and his overcoat. Like, he's like, I need to survive this. Yeah, a great, I mean, great example of him being able to very quickly diagnose a situation, a situation that he seems at least somewhat prepared for. Right. He's not, he's not stripping down fully. He he knows that they're in, you know, an area where potentially dangerous things could happen. So he's, he's at least probably more prepared for other people when this, right. Than other people when this happens. It's a good example of like awareness and like how you can bring that awareness to your everyday life of like, you know, as simple as just knowing where the exits are in a building or, you know, Mm -hmm. just, in general, keeping a track of your surroundings, like not being paranoid, but just being prepared. Right. So I have another reading to do from the Duluth Tribune. Uh, this is a short entry about one of the crewmen mm-hmm. who was lost on the cow. That's uh, Wilfred Emerson, mm-hmm. the wheelsman. Uh, so I'm going to read that here. It's relatively short, shorter than my last reading. Uh, it's titled, Superior Man Met Death, Was on His First Round Trip. Wilfred Emerson the superior man who was drowned in the steamer Cowell disaster, was a son of George Emerson of 319 John Avenue wow. in that city and was 22 years of age. He was born at the East End. He was a wheelsman on the steamer Cowell and has been sailing the entire season. He first shipped on the steamer Northern Queen in May and was making his first round trip on the Cowell, having shipped from Buffalo on her last trip up the lakes. The young man had written a letter to his father, which was received two days ago in which he said he would be unable to visit his home on this trip, but would have an opportunity the next time. The Emerson family is well-known in Superior, having resided there for 28 years. The parent is a car starter for the Duluth Traction Company. The lost wheelsman graduated from the Bryan School at South Superior, and he attended the Blaine High School at the West End and the Nelson Dewey at the East End at different times. The family received its first news of the tragedy from a News Tribune report. There's a lot there, too, that I have thoughts about. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot in that small uh, article. It's interesting that, like, they just post the family's address in the paper. Yes. But also, like, thinking more about that, like, it's just a different time, I suppose. Superior is not a big place. Everyone, for the most part, probably knows anyone worth knowing. 
Mm-hmm. And if they've lived there that long, they have those connections in the the community. But also, like, it's probably not a unique story in the community either that in this superior Wisconsin is, you know, yeah. inherently tied to the lake industry, you know, the lake freighter industry. Like, I'm sure it happens that people, you know, are killed in the line of work. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. the community wants to know about that. It's also weird hearing all those places shouted out in that article, having lived in superior for a brief time, like. I kind of know where some of those places are. It's weird. Yeah, it's interesting. The the like you mentioned with the address, like doxing people, but <laughs> but, but in a good because because <laughs> people want to send them flowers. Yeah, like I think I think it is. It's probably more of a community grieving process that I'm right. sure. You know, I think a lot of families know that like it could be them next because they have a uncle mm-hmm. or a father or a son that that sails on these vessels. That there's a bit yeah. of collective grief that goes on. I would imagine mm-hmm. for sure. Obviously, the, I think the heaviest part of that is, hey, I can't, I can't come see you, but right. I'll, I'll do it on my next one. We talk about, we talk about applying stuff from these stories to real life, and you mentioned preparedness, and I guess the other one is appreciating the people you have and yeah, uh, seeing them when you can see them for sure. So there's that. All right, continuing on. Also, I think it's it's very rough that the families have to find out this kind of stuff when they see it reported in the, in the paper. Yeah. Like that is kind of a rough way to find out. But then I guess on the other hand, not having the social media aspect is probably sort of good too, though. Right. Like you don't have that Twitter and Facebook. there's, There's that. And I think also this is, I'm assuming before, sort of pipelines were developed of more internal communication, mm-hmm. you know, for, for a company to communicate with families of employees before news breaks. I mean, these companies don't even know 100% sure who is actually employed by them at the time right. on these crews uh, all, all the time. So of course there's not going to be pretty, uh, you know, smooth communication with, with the families. Yeah. I think it's definitely like, I would not want to find out that way, but mm-hmm. also, in this time period, you don't have to worry about it becoming like hashtag cow strong or something like that. It yeah. becoming meaningless, essentially. Like they take all of the meaning out of it, you know, by, by doing those things. So I don't know. I can see that going both cow-gate. ways. Yeah. Like, I can see that going both ways that like, you obviously wouldn't want to find out in the newspaper, but also that's kind of the end of it, except for like your communal, like local grieving. Yep. It would be all bad. Right, so getting it, it'd be bad. The problem is probably more the event itself rather than how you find out about it. Right. Uh, So getting into the aftermath here. So Captain Rogers reached Duluth aboard the Goodyear on July 14th at 1.30, according to the Duluth News Tribune. Uh, He and William Niles, they met with G.A. Tomlinson, who's an agent for the company. Then they purchased new clothes to replace what they'd been given by the crew of the Goodyear. (laughs) They left by train for Cleveland at 5.15. That is a surprisingly quick turnaround. It's a very fast turnaround for like, I just almost died and a lot of my coworkers did die and I've been like in the water and cold and freezing and I, I don't quite know how my son and brother are doing. Like, can you imagine like that at 515, like you just like you're on a train? (laughs) Yeah. To go back to a work meeting, like it's crazy. I think I would be requiring their finest scotch at that point on board the train. And so I, I mentioned that about his son and his brother. This is actually right at the time when he learns that they're okay. I was doing the research and kind of seeing everything backwards. You know, I, I knew that everyone survived from the family and then found out more of the details. He doesn't know that everyone's okay until 
he gets to Duluth and he, he sees it in a newspaper. Mm-hmm. So Captain Rogers, so quoting from, from the Duluth Tribune, Captain Rogers said that someone called to him from the lifeboat of the steamer Scott that his boy was saved. But he realized that they would have given him an encouraging word no matter what had been his fate. Hence, he was under a constant strain until he reached Duluth. Interesting that he doesn't believe them necessarily. He has a very cynical eye towards that, just knowing, you know, they're they're going to tell me he's okay regardless. I think I like Captain Rogers. I, I get yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it, I get it. Sort of preparing for the worst and right. hoping, for the, hoping for the best. So Rogers refused any statement to reporters on what happened, only saying that what had already been published was as accurate as it could be. I definitely like Captain Rogers. He's not like a, <laughs> he's not like a drama guy. He's like, yeah, you already know what happened. I don't have anything to yeah, add. Yeah, not trying to add to the discourse. Just saying, hey, you guys have all the details. Right. Uh, so ports on Lake Superior awaited the revival. The revival. <laughs> arrival. I mean, that'd be cool, too. Yes. The arrival of other ships that may have picked up survivors. One of these was the Joseph Selwood which arrived on the evening of the 13th in Duluth. They had been following not far behind and on the exact same route. Uh, the captain said he saw no wreckage of any kind, and he didn't even know there'd been an accident until reaching Duluth. I think that's really interesting that like all of these ports are waiting for ships that were out on the lake to turn up. Cause you just don't know, like there's no communication. Like I can see where you could hold out hope for a long time that, maybe your family member or your friend might've got picked up and like, you just don't know it yet. It's a really kind of morbidly fascinating thing is the, the uncertainty Mm -hmm. that comes along with these. Uh, So the financial loss incurred by the sinking, we've talked about the human cost, but obviously this is commercial interests in play. Also the financial loss incurred by the sinking came in at over $300,000. The ship was insured for 275000 though her cargo itself was not. Hmm. Temporary repairs were made to the Isaac M. Scott. This included patching up her starboard side with cement. Hmm. Interesting. Which, which I always think is funny, the idea that cement would be used there, because I think, like, oh, isn't that, like, super heavy? Wouldn't it make the ship sink? And then, like, I remember that, oh, this ship, the whole ship is made of steel. Right. Yeah, like none of it steel should isn't, float. <laughs> steel isn't really that buoyant on its own either. So, so anyway, her collision bulkheads were examined and found to, to still be tight. So that's why she was able to still sail. Uh, so she continued to her original destination after she departed Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, in the Duluth Tribune, they, they wrote about this. The steamer Isaac M. Scott, which cut the steamer John B. Cowlin II off Whitefish Point last Monday morning, arrived in port yesterday morning and was taken to the Superior Shipyard. She presents a bad appearance, it being possible to look clear through the bow. It's said that about 25 plates will have to be replaced and other damages repaired. I just had like a really kind of dark thought, though. It's like the family of that kid who was killed could have literally walked to the shipyard that's probably just across the street and they could see the ship that did it. Yeah. That uh, yeah. like Superior is not a big town. I think it's funny that they include the detail of she presents a bad appearance. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I know. I know. I know it looks bad. Did you have to say it? So the reported death toll, interestingly enough, briefly rises to 15. Mm-hmm. And no, this is not because someone's revived. <laughs> There's a report of a passenger aboard the cowl named Fred Brown of Winnipeg. Okay. I say briefly because this this is in some of the headlines if you look at the ones in the days after the ones that come out on 
like the 14th and 15th, you see that this you know, passenger aboard the, the John B. Cowell, he has a name and he has a hometown and everything. Mm-hmm. Then this statement was put out by J. Burton Ayers, uh, a local rep for the United States Transportation Company. Quote, our men state positively that the fog whistle of the cowl was being blown at regular intervals at the time of the accident. It's a question for future determination as to whether or not the whistle of the Scott was operating properly. The report that a passenger named Fred Brown was drowned is incorrect. There were no passengers on the cowl at the time of the wreck. So I guess, uh, for me, I guess hearing that detail included in this statement about the safety protocols, I think is interesting Mm -hmm. because it seems to me as sort of a little bit of damage control and making sure that people, making sure that it looks like they know who's on the ship. You know, they're, they're in control of that. There's no, there's no extra, you know, mysterious passenger who happened to be aboard this ship. We have everyone accounted for. Right. Is that just like an uh, artifact that gets created in the media, basically? The whole Fred Brown story that like gets reported once and people jump on it, I'm assuming? I didn't see what the origin of it was. I think, you know, one paper starts reporting it and then everyone picks it up. Because, like I said, all of these uh, newspapers around the country, it's basically just copy and paste. Right, yeah. Uh, every every single additional article, it'll be the same paragraph with, like, one additional piece of reporting. So yeah, it's it's an interesting story how that happens, where you have this one additional passenger who exists for a day and then suddenly doesn't. Hmm. Uh, wreckage began washing up on July 16th, including Captain Rogers' trunk, but no additional bodies of the crew. So looking at consequences here, this was one that has consequences because we have survivors. Right. Three suspensions resulted from the accidents and the findings of the U.S. steamboat inspectors in Marquette. Michigan. So they're the ones who were responsible for this investigation and ultimately these suspensions. And this is reported in the Cleveland Plain Dealer in November. So Captain Rogers and pilot Edmund Carlton of the Cowl, they were suspended for 30 days each. Uh, And that was due to breaking Rule 15 of the pilot rules, which states that steam vessels shall proceed at moderate speed in thick weather and shall check to bear steerage way when hearing the fog signal of another ship, not more than four points right ahead. Did he get punished just because people died and someone had to get punished? It seems that way. I mean, it seems like, I don't know if this is like the minimum suspension that you could get. Cause like two weeks for a lake captain seems like it would just be a meaningless inconvenience. But also like, I wouldn't want to jump right back on another ship. Like I would probably mm-hmm. want a month to like, be like, yeah, I mean, clear it, my head a little bit. That could be taken into account, too. I don't know that like they were considering those things back then, <laughs> but I mean, we just think from a human toll, you'd want a little break. Yeah. Uh, so they, they were suspended for 30 days, which is not that bad compared to the pilot of the Scott. Uh, so pilot F.W. Wertheimer of the Isaac M. Scott, he was suspended for a full year hmm. uh, due to infractions of both that Rule 15 and Rule 2. Of those pilot rules, rule two states, if the pilot of a vessel fails to understand the course or intention of an approaching vessel, he shall give a danger signal of four short blasts and shall slow and, if necessary, stop his boat. Like, all of these rules are assuming they ever even saw each other. Like, I think that's what's interesting. Right. This was never going to apply. It's very hard to apply because this, or I'm sorry, rule two, rule two seems to apply to when you're not sure what the other ship's doing. Like, we talk about sometimes where... A ship, you know, turns to starboard, but the other ship has turned to port, and so they end up 
ramming each other. This is more applicable in like the Ingstad, like the the Norwegian, Mm -hmm. you know, Navy vessel that we talked about. Yeah, or the 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 military ones, the the Australian ones. Those collisions with the uh, with the Melbourne, right? Where some of that was due to being unsure of what the other ship was actually doing. But here, I, to to me, it doesn't seem like that applies. But obviously, one ship is lost, fourteen people die. Someone's going to get significant punishment for that. Well, and I mean, and, to be clear, the Scott is operating incorrectly if they're yes. going full speed through the the fog. Like it is their fault. To me, that's the thing, is that like, I, I feel like if a rule was violated, it was going way too fast right. in these conditions. Uh, Captain MacArthur, however, avoided any punishment. So Captain of the of the Scott. Well, he avoided any punishment right now. For now. <laughs> uh, maybe later. He was not on active duty at the time of the collision, so it was basically found he had no control over the situation. The pilot was in, in charge of the ship at the time. I'm surprised so that they let him get away with that, though. I don't know, because it seems to be like he would at least have gotten some sort of, at least something superficial. Well, and a lot of times it's kind of more the concept of, like, there is no off-duty for a captain. Like, you're, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have an issue, you have to handle it. And he should have been like, why are we proceeding full speed in fog? Like, it's still his vessel at the end of the day. New ship, go fast. (laughs) New ship, go fast. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I'm very surprised that he didn't get anything, even like a 30-day. So... Rogers, the captain of the Cowell. Uh, so right after the inc- the, uh, the accident, Rogers had been put in charge of the LC Smith. It works kind of like a suspension in baseball, mm-hmm. where like if you're if you're appealing it or if it's still up in the air, you can still play. <laughs> and that's that's how it is here. So he he could still captain ships uh, before this ruling was handed down, uh, and he was captaining the LC Smith. Obviously, he had to take a little break when that suspension was handed down. He would later get command of the new steamer Peter Rice. And Rogers was, was, he had a great reputation. He was considered one of the best, one of the most experienced captains on the lake. You know, any, any company would have been happy to have him as a captain. The collision with the Scott really was the only incident in his career. Mm-hmm. And you could, you could argue that it really wasn't his fault. Yeah. Like if their story is to be believed, they were doing the right things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the main story of this uh, and its aftermath. Uh, so this is a shipwreck podcast. So of course the shipwrecks themselves are of interest, I think, to, to some of our listeners. So diving on the John B. Cowell, there's quite a bit actually online. I saw a couple of YouTube videos and a few different websites uh, or like you no know, diving blog type things where people talked about the John B. Cowell. Mm-hmm. The wreck was discovered in 1972. Now, it's noted that uh, it's one of the few wrecks on the lakes where the pilot house is still intact. So if you want to dive on a ship that still has that, this is one option that you have. But really, only for advanced level divers. Right. So this is not a this is not a beginner shipwreck. Uh, it's considered very challenging because it's it's very very deep. I think the portions of it of it are as deep as I think two hundred forty feet. Right. But there's a lot of really interesting accounts from experienced diver, divers who have uh, who have visited the cowl. I love shipwrecks, and like I used to read a lot of these diving books growing up, and they were so interesting. But the thought of diving like two hundred forty feet into like ice cold water is terrifying and I would never actually want to do it. Yeah. When I was, uh, when I was in elementary school, we did the mini series voyage of the Mimi. Mm, yeah. I remember that. Which maybe some, if you know what voyage of the Mimi is and you're listening to this, I don't know, give us a mental high five or something. <laughs> um, have a, have a drink for us or something. In voyage of the Mimi, they talked a lot about, uh, scuba diving and stuff like that. 
And they talked about like the bends and nitrogen narcosis and all of the stuff that all of the bad stuff that can happen to you when you're diving. And that made me terrified of, of doing it ever in my life. I would never, ever, ever want to do it. Even though I know that there's ways to avoid doing that and to do it safely, <laughs> still not going to do it. I can't drown or get nitrogen poisoning scuba diving if I don't scuba dive. So the cowl is part of the Whitefish Point Underwater Preserve, and some of her artifacts are on display at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum. So some final thoughts here I've got. So like I mentioned, it was really fascinating to construct this set of notes, primarily from contemporary newspaper articles. There's not a ton of widely available stuff on the cowl. It's not one of the more researched and talked about ships. But there was plenty about it in the newspapers at the time. So it's cool to see the story develop Mm -hmm. kind of in real time, kind of the way that someone would have seen it develop then. Because, you know, I started with the first newspapers I could find, and I just read all the way through. So I kind of learned about it as someone else would have in 1909. You also get to see ships cross each other's paths, names that come up, uh, these ships that you sometimes recognize, and they have their own interesting stories. Uh, One of them was from the Plain Dealer on July 20th. It's talking about the rough season in general that was happening on the lakes in 1909. Mm -hmm. At that point, in a little over halfway through the year, 11 ships had been lost on the lakes. It was just like a bad year overall. Mm -hmm. Bad year for the lakes. One of those collisions was between the Sacramento, maybe a ship that people know, Mm -hmm. and the Matafa, Mm -hmm. a ship that probably more people know. That sort of made my ears perk up figuratively when I came across that name. The Matafa, for for those unaware, Matafa was famously sunk in a 1905 storm that took down 29 ships and killed 36 people. The storm that still is referred to as the Matafa storm. Mm I mean, if you if you Google it, that's what it's referred to as. So yeah, that's a that's a ship that definitely grabs your attention. And I realize it's strange that this is in 1909 and the ship sank in 1905. Matafa was brought back up and put back into service, like so many of these ships are. Uh, also, that Matafa storm has a lot of similarities to the the White Hurricane we talked about in our previous episode mm-hmm. uh, in 1913. According to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, actually, on December 5th, the lakes would take 62 lives in the year 1909. 59 drowned and three killed in an explosion. Uh, 25 ships were lost. Eight of those were in November alone. That's so crazy that 25 ships lost in a season and then eight of them in November. You're losing, what, basically two a week, basically, in in November? Yeah. A total tonnage of 30,146 uh, tons worth over a million dollars. For reference, the previous year in 1908 took 33 lives and lost 16 ships. Uh, most most of the sinkings in, in this time period are happening because of fog and collisions, just like we saw in our episode here. However, we gave that total number of, what was it, 62 from the Cleveland Plain Dealer, but that article came out on December 5th. Oh no, there's still time left in the year. There's a lot of time left on the Great Lakes <laughs> to, to have some problems. Too early to put a bow on the year 1909, because on December 8th, the steamer Clarion caught fire and ran aground in Lake Erie, killing 15. And that, to my knowledge, was the end of it. Uh, so yes, deadly year on, on the Lakes like in 1909. So another John B. Cowell actually would be built almost immediately. 
after the sinking of this one. Mm-hmm. It launched on March 5th, 1910. Okay. So that's less than a year they did after not, this one. They did not sank. waste any time. Not a lot of sentimentality, no. I guess, in the in the freight in, uh, fre- uh, freighter industry. This reminds me of have you have you ever seen the movie Beer Fest? Yes, where the one guy like I think he does he I think he drowns in like a vat of beer. Yeah, and then his identical twin joins the team and says, <laughs> "Oh, it's cool. You can just call me by his name." <laughs> That's what this reminds me of. That is exactly it. Which makes me angry because I never want to be reminded of the movie Beer Fest. Right. <laughs> so the John B. Cowell. The second iteration, she would operate until 1978. She, she has an interesting ending also. She was moored at the number four grain elevator, the International Multifoods Corporation in Duluth, when the grain elevator caught fire and collapsed. <laughs> uh, the collapsing elevator fell on the forward section of the cow, leading to her re- being written off as a total loss. She was sold for scrap and scrapped the following year. So it's the first ship I've heard that was scrapped because a grain elevator fell on her. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a unique one. I don't. I almost would like to like find the newspapers <laughs> from that and do that story sometime. Yeah, yeah, we could look at it. The ultimate fate of the Isaac M. Scott. That's one we've discussed already on the show. That was one of the one of the named ships that we featured. I think it was the last specific ship we talked about mm-hmm. in the 1913 storm episode. There's also more to the story of the Frank H. Goodyear. But I don't want to say too much. I want to save that for another episode. That one, I think, should be worth its own mm-hmm. discussion. Um, and that's that's really all I have here today for the John B. Cowell. I do just want to add, we will be recording our Patreon bonus episode uh, shortly, either today or tomorrow, uh, probably tomorrow. Our topic uh, this month will be prison hulks. So thank you to those of you who voted in our Twitter poll. That was very helpful to kind of see what's what was catching people's attention. And also thank you to Great Britain for using prison hulks and giving us something to talk about. Yeah. So thank you very, very much. Uh, so yeah, we'll talk about prison hulks uh, operating in North America during the revolutionary war. Uh, going to talk about them in Australia. Also, we'll talk a little bit about the book, great expectations. Oh, oh no. That's a, a fun, fun element of, of that book. So anyway, that's something to look forward to. If you're curious about Patreon and the kind of things we discuss, uh, some other topics we've covered are the movie and the book, The Perfect Storm. We've talked about the white ship disaster uh, from the Middle Ages. Uh, We've talked about the Frank E. Evans uh, collision with the HMAS Melbourne. And we did an episode about keelboats and the folk tales of Mike Fink. So a lot of fun, different stuff we do on the bonus episodes. We usually kind of make them more shipwreck adjacent mm-hmm. rather than just like a blow by blow account of a shipwreck. Yeah, like our we main can, episodes yeah. I feel like it's a lot of stuff who it's a lot of more like uh, maritime lore, things like that. It's, it's just a little yeah. different, but it's fun. Yeah. The bonus episodes are a lot of fun. We, um, we enjoy doing those and putting those out every month. For sure. So yeah. Check those out. Check out our Patreon stuff. If, uh, if you're enjoying the show, you want just a little bit more every month, head on over to Patreon. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it for today. So if you've got nothing else. No, I'm good. uh, I think we'll sign off here for now. So thank you for listening. We have another episode over an hour here. (laughs) So, uh, so yeah, thanks for staying with us this whole time. And we will be back with more for you next week. Take care, everyone.